Support comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to providing innovative treatment options for people living with bladder cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Howard Hoxter, Anise Chagpar, and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers is our way of providing you with the most up-to-date information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about men's health with Dr. Stanton Honig. Dr. Honig is a clinical professor in urology at Yale School of Medicine and director of the Yale Men's Health Program. Dr. Hoxter is a professor of medicine and medical oncology at Yale and the clinical program leader of the gastrointestinal cancers program at Smilo Cancer Hospital. So um, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into men's health. I've been in practice 22 years. I did a fellowship training, um, my, my residency at Boston University, and then an extra uh, time down at Baylor in male reproductive medicine. And since that point in time, we've been uh, taking care of men, specifically their kind of urological complaints. Uh, my practice is uh, based mostly on sexual dysfunction, male reproduction, and we've actually started a transgender program here at Yale over the last year and a half. Uh, and we're really interested in making sure that men go to the doctor regularly. Uh, men generally go to the doctor when they're boys, they're, they see their pediatricians, right. and then when they get to the maybe 45, 50 age group when they start to have some urinary symptoms, but we, we lose them between 18 and 40, and they don't go to the doctor unless they have a problem. And we're, we're just trying to make sure that patients understand that it's important to go to the doctor, whether it's a urologist or a primary care doctor, just, get, just to get checked regularly. I see. And uh, so any specific advice for that age group, like let's say the 20 to 40, 50-year-olds? Yeah, you just want to check in regularly. Um, we know that um, men who have um, mild uh, erectile dysfunction, it can, it can be a sign of blood flow problems elsewhere in the body. In fact, we realize that sometimes erectile dysfunction is the first sign of blood flow problems that'll show up five to 10 years down the line. So the blood vessels of the penis are the smallest vessels of the body, and they'll sh you'll have abnormalities in the penis that eventually will show up in heart disease, things like that. So it's important to go to the doctor if you have symptoms like that, because you may have some underlying high blood pressure, you may have some underlying uh, uh, coronary artery disease, you may have some high cholesterol, and if you smoke, th it gives you an opportunity to modify your risk factors. And, and also potentially diabetes. Diabetes too, that's correct. Yeah. So, um, uh, so what, what kind of areas, I mean, does, is men health kind of just focused on the, you know, g genitourinary reproductive issues or... You guys, you usually go beyond that. Well, in urology, we focus more on the genital urinary things. So, for instance, we promote the concept of testicular self-exam in men 
um, 18 to 40. Uh, young men 18 to 30 is that, is that population that uh, is most likely uh, to have a testicular cancer. So self-examination is important. Uh, checking, to, to not necessarily checking, but understanding that if you have a sexually transmitted disease, it may uh, result in a problem with fertility down the line. Um, and then as men get older, the concept of just going to the doctor, uh, getting your prostate checked, which is somewhat controversial these days, but there are certain subgroups of patients. And now uh, the, the recommendations in terms of AUA recommendations and the United States Task Force now is recommending against screening for prostate cancer in men 55 to 70. Okay. So screening for that would be digital exam and a PSA? Well, we, we recommend having a conversation with either your primary care doctor or urologist and understanding what the risk factors are and what the potential risks and benefits are. So uh, certain populations are at higher risk for prostate cancer, such as a family history of prostate cancer, and that means a first-degree relative, so a father or a brother. Uh, African-Americans are also at a higher risk for prostate cancer and more aggressive prostate cancer. So we tend to recommend screening earlier in them, in them um, but men who we think have uh, at least a 10-year life expectancy uh, between the ages of 55 and 70, and even uh, even beyond that, uh, since we're living uh, much older, that those patients get screened as well, and that would involve uh, a blood test and uh, a rectal exam. Right. So, um, you know, men are kind of reluctant to go to the doctor, as you've kind of said. Why? Why do you think that is, and what's the best way to address that? Well, I think a couple of things. Number one, um, they're afraid that they're going to be hurt by some type of exam that is done. And especially in the young men, 99% of the time there's no discomfort involved in any type of exam, especially if you're having some uh, sexual issues. The other thing is that men like to know if that if they find something bad, that it's treatable. For instance, testicular cancer, one of the most treatable uh, cancers known to man. So the earlier that you go to a doctor, get examined, things like that, the more likely you are to require less treatment. Similarly, prostate cancer is a very treatable disease if caught early. So I think the important points are, number one, uh, most of the time, the exam is benign, harmless. It usually just involves uh, a discussion. Secondly, um, most of the problems involved are treatable, curable, things like that. And lastly, when it comes to sexual problems, per se, um, this is a fixable problem. Men like to fix things. That's how we're kind of wired. Uh, we don't discuss things. We just like to know that we can fix things. When it comes to sexual dysfunction, especially things like erectile dysfunction, when a patient comes in, I tell them everyone can be fixed. It's just a matter of how you go about treating you. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, that's very reassuring to hear as a male. I mean, my wife says if male had men had to go for mammograms, like they never show up. So, you know, it is actually not as uh, 
painful as some of the things that women are accustomed to doing every year. Well, I'd, I'd also reach out to the partners of men um, regarding this as well, because especially wives, wives are the gatekeepers for men. So uh, it's really important that if you're a if you're a wife or you're a partner of uh, male out there, uh, it's important that you get your your uh, significant other or partner to the doctor, and these are the messages that you can do. Number one, you can relate to your partner. Uh, number one, most of the time it's a harmless exam. Number two, fixable problems. Number three, if something's found, it's, it's most of the time when it comes to cancer, it's curable. Those are the things that men like to know when they go to the doctor, and they're more likely to go if they have an understanding that that's how it's going to result. Mm -hmm. So um, for symptoms related to prostate enlargement or prostate cancer, like what's your, um, you know, what should, what should our listeners be looking for and, you know, what should trigger them going to the doctor if it's not one of these regular yearly exams? So the typical symptoms of an enlarged prostate are urinary symptoms, and they usually tend to be a decreased force of stream when you urinate. It usually involves getting up two or three times a night, and that's usually the type of thing that will bring uh, the patient to the doctor, or it'll be the wife nagging the husband, hey, you're getting up a couple of times at night, maybe you need to get checked. Um, sometimes it'll uh, in involve sleep issues, things like that. Uh, 20, 30 years ago, the only treatments that were available were surgical. And most of the time now, uh, number one, men want to know that if they're having those urinary symptoms, it's not anything serious. And I, I would point out that generally speaking, these urinary symptoms are not a sign of prostate cancer. It's more a sign of just a prostate enlargement. But it is important to get checked. It is important to have a PSA if you have these symptoms. That's prostate-specific antigen, which is just a simple blood test that is the best test that we have to check for prostate cancer. And we have excellent medical therapy. We have new procedures that are available that are minimally invasive that we're doing here at Yale. Um, so there are a lot of things that are available for men in and this And you're talking about for benign prostate right, enlargement. Right, for benign BP. prostate enlargement, correct. Right. And, and most of the time when people have this kind of, you know, trouble with their stream or getting up frequently at night, it is not prostate cancer most of the time. But That's it's, correct. But it can still be fixed and you can sleep better. Not only can it be, f it's fixable with medical things, minimally invasive options. Prostate cancer, generally speaking, is silent. It's usually picked up on a blood test or a physical exam. Okay. And, and um, when it comes to erectile dysfunction, what are, what are the kind of um, things that, that people might notice to bring you, them to uh, attention or that they should go see the doctor about? What, what kind well, of symptoms? Well, usually... Um, it comes down to being intimate with your partner, and men will first notice that their erections may not be as hard as they used to be, or they'll get hard and they'll lose it before they um, have an orgasm. And it's important to differentiate 
um, the difference between problems with erections, meaning getting hard, and problems where you, let's say, come too quickly, like premature ejaculation, which is actually very, very common um, as well. And uh, so generally speaking, men will find that their erections are not as good as they used to be. Um, they'll have weaker erections. And we really have outstanding treatment options available. And that usually starts with medications, such as drugs like Viagra, Levitra, Cialis, which are probably some of the safest drugs um, out there. And I'd say that most men who have mild to moderate problems with erections will respond nicely to what they're called PDE5 inhibitors, phosphodiesterase inhibitors, and uh, they work by uh, blocking the breakdown of the important substances that are important for erections. And so is that kind of a normal thing with aging, that people will get this to a certain extent? Men will get this? Well, I would say the following. It's not a normal uh, step in aging, meaning we have men in their 80s who have good erections, and when most men in their 40s will have good erections. However, over time, men will have a deterioration in their erections, and usually it's from a blood flow t problem, and the risk factors are the ones that we started to talk about earlier, which is smoking, high cholesterol, diabetes, coronary artery disease, high blood pressure, things like that. Some men who've had prostate surgery who have had effects on their nerves, some people who have uh, other neurological conditions, but about 70% of men will have a good response to these particular drugs, so they shouldn't be afraid to go to their doctor. Now, one of the problems with these drugs is that they're very expensive. Okay, and there's prob there, there are generics now that are becoming uh, available, so there are ways to kind of make it work a lot more uh, inexpensively um, with respect to these, um, these particular medications. But we have excellent treatment options above and beyond the pills as well, and we can get into that as well. Okay. Well, um, I have this impression that there's also issues with testosterone as men age, and some people have even talked about, quote, male menopause. So we will come back and talk about that more. Uh, we're going to take a short break now for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information on men's health with Dr. Stan Honig. Support comes from AstraZeneca, a global biopharmaceutical company that has developed three FDA-approved cancer medicines in the past three years for a variety of tumor types. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Genetic testing can be useful for people with certain types of cancer that seem to run in their families. Patients that are considered at risk for a familial or hereditary cancer receive genetic counseling and testing, so informed medical decisions can be based on their own personal risk assessment. Resources for genetic counseling and testing are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Smilo's genetics and prevention program is comprised of an interdisciplinary team that includes geneticists, genetic counselors, physicians, and nurses who work together with the goal of providing cancer risk assessment and taking steps to prevent the development of cancer. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Howard Hoxter, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, 
Dr. Stan Honig from the Yale uh, Urology Department and the Director of Men's Health. Uh, so we were just talking about erectile dysfunction, uh, drugs like Viagra phosphodiesterase inhibitors, and I wanted to ask you about testosterone. So there is some evidence that males produce less testosterone as they get older, and there may be an aging effect of that as well. Right. So as men get older, their testosterones go down. And uh, that doesn't mean you necessarily need replacement. In fact, the, uh, the endocrine guidelines recommend that you only screen for low testosterone if you are, quote unquote, symptomatic. So if you have a decreased energy, if you have loss of libido, some erectile dysfunction, some fatigue, things like that. So uh, we're not recommending screening for low testosterone in all men. That's not the recommended way to approach this. But in a male who's over 50, who um, has these signs and symptoms, it is reasonable to check a testosterone. Now, I'll say that testosterone is more of a libido, meaning interest uh, drug, than it is for erectile dysfunction. A lot of times, if you treat their uh, low libido and they also have associated erectile dysfunction, they'll actually get more frustrated because their libido will improve, but they won't have an improvement in their erectile function. So it's usually a combination of uh, treatment of low testosterone in addition to treatment of their erectile dysfunction. So they may go together, but not necessarily. Correct. So um, in, in a man who has erectile dysfunction alone, it's probably not just a testosterone issue. That may, testosterone may modulate your sexual response, but it's probably not the major um, issue here. I, I think one thing that's important um, to stress here is that a lot of people think that if the pills don't work, that there are no other good options uh, for patients. And I would say just the opposite. We have outstanding treatment options for men who do not respond to the pills. So, for instance, uh, we have the option uh, of injecting a tiny amount of medicine with a tiny needle into the side of the penis, which works incredibly well in men who do not respond to pills. And I, I like to compare it to uh, the flu shot. So I say to patients, um, have you ever had a flu shot? And they say, usually they, they say yes. And they say, did that hurt? And they say no. And I said, well, that's what it feels like. I know the thought of putting a, a needle it's into a the side of your penis it's a different is different place, than your though. arm. <laughs> yeah, it's a different place, as I recall, my anatomy. Right. But, but it actually, you will barely feel it. And I'd say seven out of 10 men who don't respond to pills will have an excellent response to these penile injections. Mm -hmm. We also have options called a vacuum erection device. It's a device that you put over the penis, you pump it up, it creates a vacuum around the penis, it draws blood in to help you get hard, and also works well. And for those that don't find this uh, something that would work or something that uh, that, that they would consider palatable. We also have uh, penile uh, implants, which is a surgical procedure, but actually if you look at the, the satisfaction rates and the success rates with penile implants, it's probably higher than anything out 
products out there, including pills. There's about a 50% dropout rate uh, in patients who, who just use pills for a number of reasons. It could be cost, it could be efficacy, things like that. So I would just stress uh, to people listening tonight that if they do not respond to pills, there are multiple uh, minimally invasive, excellent options that can fix this problem and make a a man uh, allowed to be intimate again with his partner. I see. And and if that's the case, I mean, there are a lot of primary care doctors, et cetera, that may give out the um, phosphodiesterase inhibitor type drugs. But then if that's not really working, see a urologic who's specialist, specialist. who specializes in uh, this kind of issue. Exactly, because there are really uh, outstanding treatment options available. Well, that's very reassuring to know. And um, and what about fertility in general? You deal with issues of male infertility. Right. So um, one of the things that I'd like to stress is a man, if he is checked um, and has a an abnormality in his sperm should be checked by uh, a urologist, a reproductive urologist. A lot of times this is driven by women, uh, the women partners, um, and because they're the gatekeepers not only for health but also for uh, pregnancy. So if you have had some kind of underlying abnormality when you're younger, let's say an undescended testicle, sexually transmitted disease, if you're trying to get your wife pregnant and you've been unsuccessful, generally speaking, uh, the recommendation is to wait a year. But in men who have had some underlying problem, the earlier you, you get this checked out, uh, the better. And number one, it's important to be examined because about once or twice a year, I'll pick up a testicular cancer in a man who presents with male factor infertility. So there can be not only abnormalities of the sperm, but there can be physical conditions that are treatable that can be the cause of these underlying problems. And not only um, can there be underlying causes, but there are things that are treatable. There are, some, there are certain things called varicoceles. They are enlarged veins around the testicles that can heat up the testicles. They probably occur in about 18% of all men, if you lined up uh, 100 men in a locker room, you'd say you'd find that 18% have these enlarged veins. But if you lined up 100 men who had fertility problems, that incidence would go up to about 35-40%. So not everyone who has the enlar these enlarged veins necessarily have a fertility problem, but in certain men, this can affect uh, their fertility. And this is, again, a treatable, reversible cause for male factor infertility. I see. And um, uh, so uh, one of the things you look at is a sperm count. Right. And then a urologic exam, urologic evaluation. And uh, it's, it's possible to bank sperm for people who have low sperm counts. Is that right? Well, generally speaking, uh, sperm banking is uh, recommended for those who are undergoing some type of treatment. So for for instance, if a patient is newly diagnosed with a testicular cancer the, the, or a lymphoma or a leukemia, this, these are the types of tumors that we'll see in reproductive age. Um, 
we recommend that you freeze some sperm before you consider any type of oncological therapy. And oncological therapy could be either chemotherapy, which can it kills cancer cells, but it also kills actively dividing cells, which are sperm cells. Same thing is true for radiation or any type of surgical procedure that may affect things like ejaculation, things like that. Um, so fertility preservation is an important concept that we're trying to get out to the general public. Um, in addition, uh, the state not, of Connecticut... But not everybody who gets... Young men who get chemotherapy for the diseases you mentioned, they're not going to be permanently infertile. Well, it depends. And what I like to say is you never know what's going to happen down the line. So, for instance, in a man who has testicular cancer, he may undergo a course of chemotherapy, and he may go from having tons of sperm to having no sperm, and then he may bounce back. But he may be one of those men that has initial chemotherapy and doesn't respond, and then needs a more aggressive uh, chemotherapy regimen, at which point he may not be able to bounce back. So some chemotherapy regimens will allow you to bounce back, others don't. The only issue really that would negate uh, freezing sperm ahead of time, as I see it, is cost. And that's one of the main points I wanted to make here, which is Connecticut is actually the first state in the United States to pass a law saying that insurance carriers must cover fertility preservation prior to oncological therapy. And I'd also mention that it's not only cancer therapy. It may be patients who have rheumatological diseases like arthritis or other things that may undergo treatments for, uh, let's say, methotrexate or cytoxan. It's not just the um, cancer patients. It's other patients. In fact, uh, we've started a transgender program here in Yale, and one of the things that we focus on is fertility preservation. So before uh, let's say a male to female undergoes, undergoes gender-affirming surgery and remove uh, the gametes, we offer cryopreservation preservation of sperm prior to that. So if they wanted to have a biological child, that this would be an option for them down the line. And, and this is covered by insurance, all that, in terms of the original preservation and then also yearly maintenance fees or whatever... Well, involved? as we speak, the answer is no. But as of January 1st, when the law goes into effect, uh -huh. um, Connecticut is the first state to pass a law saying that insurance must coverage cryopreservation of sperm. I'm not sure of the specific details okay. of long-term coverage, things like that, but um, it's really been a historic step um, uh, in the Connecticut legislature moving forward in this area of fertility preservation. And, and that will start January 1st? I believe it's January 1st. Uh -huh. it, was, it was put into law, signed by Doc, um, uh, Governor Malloy, I believe, in September. I see. Well, that's very interesting. Um, and uh, so, um, uh, and, and I guess maybe the last thing that maybe we could talk about for a minute would be uh, prostate cancer screening. So, you know, there's a lot of news in the um, p press about, you know, it c c should you get your PSA done, should you not get it done, what, who's, which organization is recommending do it or not. Can you give us some advice on that? 
Well, I think the current guidelines are that men between the ages of 55 and 70 uh, should be screened for prostate cancer. And I think that involves um, a decision-making process between the patient and his doctor, whether it be his primary care doctor um, or, or a uh, urologist. Uh, I practice what I preach. Um, I get PSA screening. Uh, I have a, a, a digital exam. I have a PSA because the only way you can find something is if you check for it. And if you don't check for it, you may end up with um, advanced cancer. Now, having said that, we've taken a much less aggressive approach to low-grade prostate cancer. So in people who have screening, who have a low-grade cancer, a lot of them are on, call, are on what's called active surveillance, meaning they don't even need treatment, but they're watched regularly with some kind of screening, PSA, biopsy, et cetera, to make sure there's not progression to uh, aggressive disease. So. Uh, historically, 15 years ago, if you had prostate cancer, it was like you were pregnant or you're not. If you had it, you had to have treatment. Now we realize that there are those that are very aggressive that need treatment, and there are those that don't need treatment. And I think one of the issues with the PSA screening is that since with prostatic hypertrophy, enlarged benign prostate enlargement, you can have a somewhat elevated PSA, and then there are a lot of extra biopsies in those situations. Well, it depends. I think we have a lot of different tools now. So, for instance, uh, the MRI uh, over the last three to five years has become a much more valuable tool in identifying um, abnormalities. So it's not just biopsy, biopsy, biopsy. Dr. Stanton Honig is a clinical professor in urology at Yale School of Medicine and director of the Yale Men's Health Program. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.